Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, we go back to Voices 2019, where sustainability was front of mind. Dana Thomas's most recent book, Fashionopolis, is a seething indictment of fast fashion and its damaging environmental and societal impact. But she concludes with a glimmer of optimism. And in fact, regular listeners of the BOF podcast will remember that Dana and I had a conversation here last year where she described Fashionopolis as a book of hope. Much of that hope rests on a growing group of innovators who are at the forefront of making fashion more sustainable. And it turns out that many of these innovators are women. So here is Dana Thomas on the women at the forefront of the sustainable fashion revolution at Voices 2019. In the summer of 2016, I began working on my third book, one I had been noodling for more than a decade. My idea was to report and write about the backlash to globalization and the convoluted supply chain's impact on humanity and the planet. What I didn't realize until I sat down and started was that the majority of the change makers were and are women. Like Sarah Bellows, a 33-year-old co-founder and head of Stony Creek Colors, a natural indigo dye company in Goodlettsville, Tennessee. Natural indigo was the only indigo until the German chemical company BA. SF created the synthetic version in the late 19th century. Unlike natural indigo, synthetic wasn't seasonal or vulnerable to blight and weather destruction. And it was consistent and cheap. This meant mills like cone, cone denim, could weave and dye their denim 12 months a year. By 1914, the natural indigo business had been annihilated, never to recover. Today, almost all the denim we wear, 99.99%, is dyed with synthetic indigo, which is made of chemicals, including benzene, cyanide, and formaldehyde, that are toxic or harmful to humans. The economics aren't there for people to care, Bellows told me when I visited her fields and walked these fields with her. Pollution is the cheapest way to do business. Bellows is trying to change that mindset. Natural indigo's plants nourish the soil. And in the long term, natural indigo is more financially beneficial than synthetic for most everyone along the supply chain. When we met in 2016, Bellows was the sole producer of natural indigo on an industrial scale in the United States. Her clients included Cone and Patagonia. Her goal back then was to command 1%, 1% of the entire indigo market by 2021. She thought this would be enormous. She said, phenomenal. If I can get 1%, that'll be phenomenal. Two years later, when I circled back around to get an update, that target figure had jumped up to 2.8% by 2024. She hopes that there will be more companies like hers, that she's gonna inspire other folks to do this too in the next 10 years, that maybe we can get up to 10% or 20% or 30%, have some choice. I hope so too. Next, there's Sally Fox, who is considered by many in the industry to be the mother of modern organic cotton. 
Throughout her career, Fox has fought the good fight. She reminds me kind of like the, the fashion version of Jane Goodall. She kind of looks like her too. But she's had middling success in this fight. Conventional cotton farmers in the American Southwest did their best to quash her endeavors. I mean, when she told me the stories, in, she lives in a trailer, and when she told me over tea in her trailer about what the farmers did to run her out of town, Bakersville, or Field, and in Arizona, crazy. Levi's first applauded and encouraged and even contracted her to supply the company with her organic cotton. And she was wearing some of the jeans made of it when I met her. But then, after a management shakeup in the 90s, the company abruptly cut her loose, and that led to her bankruptcy. Yet she's never given up. Now, on Veradita's farm, her 130-acre stead northwest of Sacramento, she still breeds and nurtures cotton, as well as raises sheep for wool, and she farms crops to sequester carbon and build topsoil. For her, this is the only way forward. Right now, she said, the climate goal for the Paris Accord is 0.4% carpet sequestration per acre per year. We have to get the carbon out of the atmosphere before there's no return. All of this is of a piece. Last month, Fox met Bellows on Al Gore's sustainable farm in Tennessee. They're talking about how they can work together. Isn't that great? Then there's industry veteran Stacy Flynn of Evernew, the Seattle-based company that produces molecularly regenerated fiber made of 100% post-consumer cotton garment waste. Basically, your old t-shirts and underwear. She regenerates it back to virginal state, which can be woven into cotton again. Evernew consumes 98% less water than virgin cotton, produces 80% less greenhouse gases, gas emissions than polyester, viscose, and elastine like spandex and lycra, emits zero plastic microfibers, causes zero deforestation, and requires zero farmland. Like most of the women I met while researching this book, when Flynn first pitched her idea to potential investors, to angels, such as the reps at her former employer, Target, she was told she was crazy. I mean, every single woman in this book who had a great idea was told, you're crazy. It'll never work. They didn't stop. None of them. Stacy and her business partner, Christopher Christov-Stanev, kept at it, and they landed funding, and eventually inked a deal with Levi's to create prototypes of jeans made of Evernew. I saw one at Premier Vision, one pair. They were really great. You couldn't tell they weren't the usual denim that Levi's uses. Levi's head of innovation, Paul Dillinger, called those jeans a little industrial miracle. Soon, Dillinger told me, Evernew will be introduced into Levi's broader supply chain as a material. We'll be having jeans made out of recycled t-shirts, but not recycled, regenerated. 
As it happens, Flynn met Sarah Bellows at an accelerator last year. It all sort of just swirls together, and all these women are getting together. They're having like a meetup. It's fantastic. Now imagine if Bellows supplied natural indigo to dye Evernews regenerated cotton jeans. I mean, talk about green jeans. Then there's Natalie Channon of Alabama Channon, a slow fashion brand in Florence, Alabama. She specializes in organic cotton clothes, sold direct to consumer. Before NAFTA was enacted in 1994, Florence, Alabama was the cotton t-shirt capital of the world. Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, Walt Disney, they all produced there. After NAFTA, Florence, like much of the textile-driven South, plunged into financial and social crisis. In 1993, Natalie told me, 5,000 workers worked in this two-block radius of my factory. And that didn't include all the service industries like daycare, restaurants, gas stations that supported the 5,000 workers. When manufacturing collapsed here, she said, everything collapsed. A Florence native, Channon began her career in fashion on New York 7th Avenue. In 2006, she moved her business back home and embraced what her fellow Florentine, the singer-songwriter John Paul White, calls the nurturing benefits of a small town. Nurturing is a great word here. Everything at Alabama Channon is made to order, sewed by local seamstresses. To train more machinists, Channon has partnered with Nest, a New York-based nonprofit that supports artisan fashion communities throughout the world. Channon concedes that implementing a more ethical business model hasn't been the most lucrative way to run her business. You know, she's she says, I'm not rich. I live comfortably, but not, you know, I'm living in a small town, and I drive a Prius, and my life is simple. There are times she also misses what she calls the deeper connection to the industry and the heartbeat of what's happening in design in America, that jazz that she would get when she was in New York or Paris or London. But the advantages of being what she calls hyper-local outweigh that. And when the difficult times come, and they do, she has such low overhead and expenses, she can ride on through. She's 100% self-owned and has zero debt. She invests in young people and trains them well. Her business practice is zero waste, which is what we all need to aim toward. And she has a deep commitment to her community, thinking local, thinking about the people around you. The one, she said, the people you love, basically. When I went to Bangladesh for the fifth anniversary of Rana Plaza, after the fifth anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse that killed more than 1,000 people, I met Kalpona Akhtar, the executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity, one of the country's most prominent labor rights advocacy organizations, and a speaker here at this conference last year. Actor is a mighty force. 
Back in 1990, when she was 12 years old, she went into the factory. She went to work in the factories in Bangladesh, one that specialized in knitwear for clients like Walmart and Sears Canada. She clocked 400, 400 hours a month for which she was paid $6. Shoes were not allowed, she said. We stood in our bare feet for 16 hours straight. I saw that in a workshop in Bangladesh. Everyone was barefoot. I never really understood why, but everyone was barefoot, standing on squares of corrugated cardboard on rough-hewn floors. Actor was forced to do overtime. She was sexually harassed. And if she didn't keep up with her quota, she was slapped and beaten. When she was 13, a fire broke out in the factory. Management padlocked the exits, trapping the workers inside while insisting that the blaze was under control. They were afraid that everybody was going to grab clothes and run out and steal from them. For two hours, actor and her and her colleagues screamed and banged on the door, begging to be released. Finally, management opened the doors. The workers stampeded. Actor was trampled. Once she recovered, she returned to her job. She had to pay her bills, her family's bills. She was a breadwinner. She joined a worker's strike, fighting pay cuts for overtime. They wanted to pay them less than $6 a month. At 16, she was elected union president for her shop floor. The manufacturer fired her. Bangladesh manufacturers are famously anti-union. She went to labor court, she fought, and she actually won. She got some termination benefits. And then she became a union organizer, a role she has carried on now for a quarter of a century lobbying for increased wages, benefits, and safe work environments, things that we all take for granted. But there, you got to fight to get just a little bit of it. It was stupid for the factory owners to fire me, she told me. If they'd kept me, I wouldn't have become an organizer advocating for workers around the world. Getting fired lit her internal fire. Through the protests and union pressure, she and her colleagues have logged a few victories, such as higher wages, maternity benefits, like, or just maternity leave. Now, there's an idea. Like, you don't just lose your job because you're having a baby. One factory I learned about in Saipan, they actually forced workers to have abortions so they wouldn't take off time from work to have a baby. Like, you have a baby, you lose your job, you want your job, go see the clinic. But there's still much more to be done. On the fifth anniversary of Rana Plaza in 2018, I watched actor as she led a human chain across the empty lot with protesters and survivors and called again for better working conditions and fair pay. When there is an injustice, she said, someone must stand up and speak up. These are a handful of the powerful women that I met on this book journey. I found them to be so inspiring, courageous, bold, inventive, 
and their care for Mother Earth and humankind is sincere. These and many others that I encountered, and more that I didn't, are pushing what the Greek philosopher Plato called the ideal polis. And that one should embody four cardinal virtues. Wisdom, courage, moderation, and most importantly, justice. If it does, we will have a just city, a fashionopolis. And isn't that what we should all want? Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.